Um, we're continuing on in 1 Corinthians 10 here, um, beginning at verse 23 and then through the first verse of, of chapter 11. Um, let me read that as we begin. And uh, you notice the title of the message is Glory to God. And uh, you caught that perhaps in the scripture lesson, but you'll catch it here as well um, as Paul continues on, that everything we do is to do to the glory of God. Beginning in verse 23, it says, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul talks here about a life that glorifies God. And I'm reminded of the story of General Lee as he wrote a letter to Stonewall Jackson during the Civil War. Um, Jackson had been wounded at the Battle of Chancellorsville and he sent him a note which read, General, I have received your note. Informing me that you were wounded, I cannot express my regrets at the occurrence. Could I have, could I have directed events I should have chosen for the good of the country to be disabled in your place? I congratulate you upon the victory which is due to your skill and energy. Very respectfully, your obedient servant, Robert E. Lee, General. Now when the note was delivered and read to Jackson, he turned to the wall for a few minutes and then he looked back at Lee's aide. <laughs> And he said, General Lee is very kind, but he should give the praise to God. (laughs) The great composer J.S. Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach, said, All music should have no other end and aim than the glory of God and the soul's refreshment. And he said, Where this is not remembered, there's no real music, but only a devilish hubbub. (laughs) He always headed his compositions with the letters J.J., Maybe you know what that stands for, Jesus Yuva, which means Jesus, help me. He always ended them with S-D-G, Sola Dea Gratia, or Sola Dea Gloria, which means to God alone be the praise. In our text, Paul says that in everything we do, God should be praised and glorified. We read it right there in verse 31. Whether therefore you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. The word glory speaks of something or someone that it's, it's worthy of praise or worthy of exaltation. Giving the glory to God is to acknowledge Him as the one 
that is worthy of the praise and the exaltation is to ascribe to him like we read in Psalm 29, 1 and 2 at the beginning today. Ascribe to the Lord, almighty ones. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Our Lord deserves the glory. (laughs) He desires the glory and the psalmist declares he's due that glory. As believers, we give God glory both with our lips and with our lives. (laughs) And as we look at Paul's words, we see that it is giving God's glory with our life that is his focus. He talks about what we do and not necessarily what we say. And he describes that in the verses 23 through 33, a life that glorifies God. And he points out some principles for us that help us look at that. And he describes Those things, how we can learn about a life that glorifies God. And he starts with there in verse 23, a gauge that is applied to our lives. He starts with this gauge there in verse 23. He says, everything is permissible. Everything's lawful, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. (laughs) He says it twice there in verse 23. Everything's lawful. Everything's permissible. We have seen that phrase. We saw it earlier in 1 Corinthians here. It's a phrase that is used to speak about freedom and liberty that we have in Christ. Paul used it in reference to the gray areas in life. Um, Those areas that aren't quite fully black and white in Scripture. And so he uses it again here and he brings it up with them to, to get that. And he identifies a twofold gauge Measurement here. First of all, we know that things are lawful. We know that these things are permissible, but is it beneficial? Is it profitable, is the way some will put it, or use, um, useful or advantageous? It speaks about bringing something to a wholesome conclusion. When something's not beneficial, it means it does not produce spiritual benefits in the life, it's not spiritually profitable. Whenever it comes to gray areas of life and those situations of life that the Bible doesn't seem to speak directly about, um, it could be possible that it might not be wrong for a child to participate in it, child of God. Whatever it may be. But when Paul said, all things are lawful for me, that's what he's saying. He was simply acknowledging that when a matter is not clearly defined as right or wrong, a Christian could possibly do such a thing and it wouldn't be a sin. But the gauge that Paul applies to such things as we live our lives as believers is to ask that question. Is it beneficial? See, you can't judge a situation by where it's at, but where sometimes where it takes you sometimes. Whatever it may be, does it glorify the Lord Jesus Christ? Does it glorify God? And that's a gauge that Paul says we can use in our lives. Something that we can use as a filter. The truth is that oftentimes our life is built around things that aren't wrong. They just don't have any spiritual value. (laughs) We should ask ourselves, how does this help me grow spiritually? Is what I am doing or or want to do, is it going to benefit me in my Christian life? Will I glorify Jesus in doing whatever? Now, don't get caught up. Sometimes people get caught up 
with things that only can be spiritual if they're only things that can be done at church or things that way. But do you realize that whatever work you do, whatever vocation you have, you can do that to the glory of God. Unless it's totally doing something that's wrong that's specifically laid out in Scripture. In fact, it's a wonderful thing to give glory to God in that way. And the second question he asks is, is it edifying? Is it constructive? The word edify here, that word for constructive, is that idea of building a house. Will it literally build things up? Is it a word in the, it's a word in the New Testament that talks about the kind of life we're building, a spiritual house that we live in. Matthew 7, 24 is that great example where Jesus says, he who hears these words of mine and does them is like a man who built his house on the rock. And the storms come against that rock and it stands firm. We can ask things like, do we need that devotional life to spend time with God? Do we spend time in prayer? Do we read our Bible and study it? Are we concerned about the lost? It it may sound a bit harsh to say, but in many cases, in most churches, many of us as believers, sometimes we are not as spiritually mature as God would want us to be. And that's why we need to keep working on those things and to ask these questions. It is good for us to ask, will this be profitable for me as a Christian? Will this help me grow? And in the Christian life, if we're not moving forward, (laughs) we can't just stay stagnant. That's the same as moving backwards, isn't it? And if God is at work, then you can't just stay right where you're at. So we should ask, is this beneficial? Is it edifying? And so he gets to the second part in verses 24 through 31. A life that glorifies God is not only concerned about our personal spiritual life, but there's an interest in the spiritual life of others. In a life that glorifies God, there's not only a gauge by which we measure um, our activities, but a way that we can seek to help or to measure activities that are outside of us. There is, first of all, there in verse 24, an unselfish life that we should live. Verse 24 says, Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Now, you may be looking at the screen and wondering, why are there a pile of pancakes up there? There's an illustration that does this very well, and it's kind of fun to do, but it was a mother that was preparing pancakes for her sons. Kevin was five years old, and Ryan was three. Now, again, this is an illustration. It's not people I know or anything like that. The boys begin to argue over who would get the first pancake. That never happens, right? The mother saw an opportunity for a moral lesson. So she looked at them and she said, if Jesus was sitting here, he would say, let my brother have the first pancake. So Kevin turned to Ryan and he said, Ryan, you be Jesus. (laughs) That can sound like many of us in the family of God. Often people, we become so self-centered We do things for ourselves. Paul tells us that one of the characteristics of a life that glorifies God is not self-centered or selfish. A life that glorifies God seeks to lift, help, 
and profit others. It's not marked by selfishness, but by selflessness. Philippians 2.4 says, Each of you should look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. It goes on to say that's the way Christ was. Some people serve for what they can get out of it. Some people do what they do for their own benefit. But those who seek to glorify God do what they do so others will profit. Others will benefit. And the second part of this is an unhindering life. That's the term I'll use here in verses 25 through 29. And so he uses this illustration and he, he, he talks about these things. He says um, why should we should have an unhindering life. He says, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He reminds them of that. In verse 27, he gives that scenario to illustrate the point again. He says, if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever's put before you without raising questions or conscience. And then he gives the illustration, if a Christian is being invited to dinner by someone who's not a Christian, Paul says, if that person is disposed to go and you really want to go, go and go ahead and eat what is ever put before you without, I mean, not worrying about the conscience ask. But, If that friend takes you out and orders a big steak, don't worry about it, whether it's been offered to idols or not. Eat and enjoy yourself. But then in verse 28, Paul gives another scenario of the same situation. If anyone says to you this has been offered to us in sacrifice, then don't eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for conscience sake. And he adds another twist onto this there as he continues on with it. By adding another Christian coming along, and this brother notices that the stake came from the temple where it would have been sacrificed to an idol. And Paul says that this brother, who is not as mature as others, perhaps doesn't understand that that it is just meat. He leans over and says to you, this has been dedicated in the temple. Paul says you shouldn't eat it then for his conscience sake. To not cause him to stumble in that way. The believer there knows that there's nothing wrong about eating the meat. But he does not seek his own, but the well-being of the weaker brother. Then if you look at verse 29, he says there, the other man's conscience, I mean not yours. And Paul says, it may not hurt you to eat it, but it would bother your weaker brother. So don't do it to keep your testimony intact so it won't hurt the weaker brother. And then Paul adds in verse 29, for why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? Paul was saying that he had the right to eat the meat, even if the weaker brother um, didn't understand. But since it could hurt the other one, you just seek the well-being of the other one. And in verse 30, he talks to those who criticize and condemn those who, who did eat such meat. He says, if I take part in the meat with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? Paul just says that it's not right for someone who thinks that it's wrong to do such thing to condemn anyone anyway. An illustration of this would be an old fax machine. I say old fax machine. That seems weird to say. Um, There's still fax machines. But nowadays, what do we do? We just take a picture of it with our phone and we text things over. But the Christian life can be compared to a fax machine. On a fax machine, you can send an exact duplicate of a document anywhere in the world. Um, The receiving machine doesn't receive the original, but it receives a duplicate. 
The writer says that in a Christian, in a, in a Christian people, we, we are to be seen as a copy of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to reflect him in our lives. But they don't always get to see the original. <laughs> they see a duplicate of him. By the way, can any of us be perfect as Jesus Christ? No. But with his strength and what he's done and being reminded of his righteousness, we strive for that, not in our own strength. When you think of someone that's living their life in the light of others, the Lord Jesus is that supreme example. And a life that glorifies God is one in which a guide is adopted, a guide that says, I will seek the well-being of others and not seek my own. And that leads to the third part of this, a goal here that is accepted for life. A life that glorifies God not only has an effect on one's own spiritual life and one's life as it relates to other believers, but it also is concerned about those who are not saved, those who don't know God. In verses 32 and 33, Paul described a goal that he had has assumed for his life a goal that Paul describes as a feature of a life that glorifies God. And that's, first of all, a godly walk. A lot of times in Scripture when that word walk is used, it's the idea of continually living our lives, walking along. And in verse 32 it says, Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Paul is talking again about doing nothing that will blow his testimony and witness, but more important, won't cause somebody else to stumble. I won't ask for a raise of hands, but how many of us have caused somebody else to stumble at some time? We all have. But Paul is reminding this, of this that we need to walk in that way. And Paul makes reference to those there. He, first of all, makes reference to those who aren't saved, those Jews and Gentiles who don't know God. But Paul is saying that he doesn't want us to do anything to hurt, hurt the church of God as well. And he doesn't want us to do anything that would hurt. He doesn't want to do anything that would hurt his ability to win lost people or to point lost people to Jesus Christ. He starts with the godly walk and then he goes to the godly work. In verse 33, he says, Even as I try to please everybody in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many so that they may be saved. Don't, don't, don't just take this and say, well, Paul is just trying to be a yes person to each whatever comes to him in that way. You catch the whole context here. <laughs> Paul is talking about being someone who's following God in such a way that it would point people to him. And he goes out to those people where they are, but he does not partake of the sin. That's been clear throughout. But the goal that Paul has and the goal that we ought to have is that people would come to Christ, that they would know him that they would hear the word of God so that God could make that call upon their lives. And that's what a life is. A life that seeks to glorify God is one that seeks to, to see people come to Christ, to be one for him. When you come to know Jesus as your Savior, you recognize that the Holy Spirit lives within you. 
And he gives you the desire, the determination to tell others at times when you get those opportunities. Because we can't win people for the Lord. We can't win everyone. Only Jesus can win people, but we can point them to him. Because you and I can't save anybody. We're all sinners by nature and by choice. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of that sin is death. But God has provided a way for someone to know for certain that when they die, they'll go to heaven. And there's scripture that gives us this. 1 John 3.14 says that when, sorry, we know that when we have passed from death unto life, we know when, when they die that we can go to heaven. I think of 1 John 5. It says, He who has the Son has life. He who doesn't have the Son of God does not have the life. These things are written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you can know that you have eternal life. Because Jesus died on the cross for you and for me. He gave His life. And now in return, we try to live to glorify him. When we do this, when we allow Christ and when Christ becomes a part of our life, we're not buying fire insurance. We're receiving a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. John 17:3 tells us what eternal life is. It says, "And this is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent." Will Jesus watch over me? Will he watch over you? Will he care for you and care for me? Indeed. And if we trust in him and what he has done, then we will be saved. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In confirmation this morning, it was funny again, to talk about who Jesus Christ is because we're starting that second article of the creed. And who is Jesus? He's fully God and fully man. 100% God, 100% man. Why did he have to be 100% man? So he could be that sacrifice for us. So he could take the sin of the world upon himself. Why did he have to be 100% God? (laughs) So that he could be that perfect sacrifice. So that blood, that precious blood could atone for our sin. The blood of the goats and the blood of the the lambs and everything before that were all pictures and pointing ahead to that one sacrifice. I had the blessing of being at uh, uh, the concert, uh, Andrew Peterson concert on Friday evening at our Bible college. And if you ever get a chance to listen to Andrew Peterson's music, I would encourage you. They're all story songs. He has written most of them himself. But it was great, again, to sit there and hear those things and to see and to be reminded that we give the glory to God, but that God has done the work. And that I am truly loved. When I don't consider that I am or whatever, that I am truly loved by God. (laughs) And it's because of that love that it motivates me and should motivate us to love him back. 
And then to love others. And to be reminded of that aspect. See, there's one last part to all this, isn't there? Verse 1 of the next chapter. I don't know how they kind of put that, but it says, Paul says, follow my example. Paul had a, a confidence in Christ to say, follow my example. I know it's hard to say that at times because we know our sinfulness. But if we go forward in Christ's help, we can say, follow my example. But we know as well that that example isn't always going to be perfect, but we can say, follow Christ. Because that's who we're supposed to follow. Thank you, Lord, for your word this morning. Help us to give the glory to you when things happen. Help us to rely upon you and to worship you with our whole lives. To ask those questions of the things that we do and the things that we say. But all I can pray again, Lord, too, is we need your help to do that. Thank you for, for providing it. Help us and help us to help others. And help us to share you. For to you belongs the glory. Because you've done the great things. I pray these things in your name, Lord. And um, Lord, keep me out of the way with anything of this. But may you be seen. May each of us, may I be reminded too, that you are the one that we rely upon. Amen and amen.